This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us. You know, Thomas, I'm going to bring up a subject that I know you don't want me to bring up because we thought we had kind of put it away. Guess what that subject is? Motorcycles. Yeah, good guess, good <laughs> guess, but it's not motorcycles. Let's go back and talk a little bit about COVID-19. As you know, back in mid-January, we had 4,250 COVID-19 patients in our hospitals in Trauma Service Area E, which translates North Texas. Now we've got about 450. And you go, Steve, tremendous improvement. And I would agree with you. Except in the middle of May, we had much less. We were down in the 200s at one time. So guess why we're growing again? The Delta variant. It is the Delta variant. And let me explain to you. I talked to some infectious disease doctors that have done research on this Delta variant. And they looked at some information out of Israel. They looked at some information out of the Imperial College. And this is what they found. One person infected with the Delta variant who's around unvaccinated people can transmit it directly to five people. The original COVID-19, one person would transmit it to about 2 to 2.4. See why it's spreading? So it's about double the infection capability of what we dealt with for the last 18 months. Absolutely. And when I talk to our emergency room doctors and the clinicians, many of the people that are coming into the hospital now have the Delta variant. Now, another thing that we want to just point out, we're not preaching, we're not scolding, we certainly understand people have to make up their own mind, but the majority of people that are in our hospitals with COVID were not vaccinated. Did you see that story uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was, maybe a week and a half ago of a lady in Missouri who was in her mid-40s, saw her mom get the vaccine and had some side effects. So she was scared to get the vaccine. Guess who's dead from COVID? I can only imagine. It's, it's so tragic. And, you know, I'm not trying to scare people in any way. And I will tell you, some people that are vaccinated do test positive for COVID, according to the doctors I talked to. Not many, but a few. But they don't get hospitalized. They have a very mild case. So, you know, getting the vaccine will help prevent you from having to go to the hospital, hopefully, and as you indicated, even lose your life. So vaccinations currently are one of the very best tools we have against COVID-19. Thomas, you know what I would like to do? What's that? I'd like to bring in an expert. You know, we had Dr. Lee Hunter on, and for the people that may not remember her, she's the program director at the Methodist Internal Medicine Residency Program, and she has a fellowship in infectious disease. She's calm, she's a good listener, and she gives you facts. Why don't we talk to her? 
about people that are reluctant to get the vaccine, but in a way that we're trying to understand what their concerns are. Steve, I think that's perfect because, you know, at this point in the stage, there have been enough people that have been vaccinated by their own accord. And now the people that have concerns want and need some empathy that I don't think they're getting. So this is perfect. Dr. Hunter, welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you today. You know, we're going to talk about a topic that I think our listeners will really appreciate. We've tried to listen to the people that have not received their COVID-19 vaccine. We're going to take some of the things we've heard and ask you about it and let you give your take on it. And I'm just going to jump right in. You know, when you look at some of the previous class one prescriptions that have been recalled, and I'll give you some examples, Valsartan, which you know was used for hypertension, recalls, some of the particles or ingredients might cause cancer, Accutane that was for acne got recalled, Vioxx for pain medication. You know, I could go down another list. These were medications that had been out in the marketplace approved by the FDA that got recalled. We are hearing from some people, it's too early. This could get recalled. I'm not about to take something that's emergency use authorization because it's not safe. Your thoughts? So when we look at vaccines, it's slightly different than drug approvals. And so, you know, if you look at the progress and process that has gone forth with this, you know, current mRNA vaccines, we'll talk about those specifically you know, it was a rigorous evaluation of the scientific information. And so everything that was done with the phase one, two, and three trials was not rushed. It was the same process. Now, part of the reason that things got done more quickly is that we had private industry involved with the manufacture and the creation of these vaccines. And so that was helpful. In addition, there was lots of financial supplementation so that funding was not an issue. So if you look at, you know, people that think this whole process has been rushed, um, that's really not accurate description of that because they followed all the same processes. Now, when the FDA looks at the emergency use authorization, they review all of these trials and they, you know, put it to the same scrutiny But in light of the fact that we are in an emergency medical situation, they allow approval to go forward on an emergency basis. And then what they do is they continue to collect safety data. They continue to collect efficacy data. Now, the difference when you look at drugs and the difference when you look at vaccines most of the side effects are going to occur within the first two months. And so you might remember that when they did the emergency use approval um, with Pfizer being first, they waited the two months before they did that. And so um, hopefully that would reassure people that, you know, if if the bad things that are going to happen are going to happen within two months, once you get past that time, it shouldn't be as much of an issue. And at this point in time, you know, worldwide, 3.2 billion doses have been given, and in the U.S., 331 million. And so we've seen lots more uh, vaccinations done than obviously were done in the studies. Now, I will say, 
if it would, I guess, uh, alleviate fear and anxiety in people for the FDA to fully approve it, I, I think these companies should move ahead and they have all the data they need. And so, you know, if that would hopefully spur, you know, a, a percentage of the population to go in and get the vaccine, I wish, you know, the drug companies would do that. You know, I, I think most people that do vaccine work as their life's work will tell you that the side effects that are usually incurred are within two months. So we're way past that now. This is Dr. Lee Hunter from Methodist Health System, and we are just getting warmed up with her. We're going to be back to answer more of your questions about the COVID-19 vaccination. If you've not been vaccinated and have had concerns, she is an amazing resource. And she'll be back next on The Human Side of Healthcare. This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back. We're going to head right back to our interview with Dr. Lee Hunter. She is the director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Methodist Health System, is fellowship trained in infectious disease, and has been in practice for over 30 years. Our next question is about minority reluctance to get the vaccination. Steve? You know, another thing that we've heard frequently, and there was a Kaiser Family Foundation poll that indicated that Latinos, African-Americans, and Native Americans really had a high level of vaccine hesitancy. And you and I know that in 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service, the U.S. Public Health Service, in conjunction with Tuskegee Institute, did an experiment related to syphilis on black men and it was handled very inappropriately, and we've, we've all heard the horror about that and the atrocities. Can we trust the government, the FDA, the CDC, regarding these vaccines? You know, um, as a physician, that, that was a disgraceful period, you know, in, in scientific history, and I think, you know, all of us can't even imagine such a thing happening now. I think it's our job and our duty to try to restore faith of the communities of color and especially the African-American community as it relates to Tuskegee in our healthcare systems and, and, you know, try to address racism in medicine. Aside from the mistrust because of terrible things like that happening, you know, there have been problems with access, there have been problems with barriers of care, and I think there are lots of reasons that people, you know, don't trust our health system and specifically the CDC and the FDA. You know, it's kind of interesting. There was a recent study that looked at, that asked people, you know, do you trust the CDC and the FDA? And only about half the people did during this pandemic. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it because these are supposed to be institutions that protect Americans and make sure that, you know, safe products come out and safe delivery of, of you know, drugs and, and things like that happen. So um, in order for, um, I think, the people that aren't getting vaccinated because of distrust, in order for them to trust us, we're going to have to get people they trust 
to um, to try to talk with them. And so whether that's a community leader, whether that's a religious leader, whether it's someone, you know, that they do trust in the, in the healthcare system, so maybe they're a personal doctor. And so I think it's all of our responsibility to try to do that. As you pointed out, many of these populations have more severe illness, uh, have had higher death rates, and so we need to try to protect them. These are great vaccines, and all of this is preventable if we can get people to, you know, get over their anxiety and fear and go ahead and get vaccinated. Here's another thing we've heard. I witnessed a relative or a friend that took the Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson and Johnson vaccine, and they had horrible side effects, and they were running fever and they ached. By golly, I'm not going to get that vaccine. What's your answer to that? Well, so it it's actually sort of interesting. Now, it's really hard when somebody has a personal experience and they saw someone that they loved have that happen to them. But if you step back and, you know, as I mentioned now, you know, millions and billions of doses have been given. And so if you look at the side effects, you know, most of them are mild. And so it's the whole flu-like thing where you're fatigued and you've got headache and muscle aches and fever and chills and that sort of thing. And we know it lasts one to two days. And we know that it's because your body is actually responding as it should and is building protection. That part is common in all vaccines. And so, you know, uh, if you think back on, uh, especially for parents, when they think of their children that they take to get vaccinated, you know, many times uh, the child is, you know, um, irritable and has a little fever and all that sort of stuff after vaccines. Now, the more serious ones, which I think is really what you're alluding to, you know, the serious allergy, which is called anaphylaxis, where you have, you know, trouble breathing or you may have, you know, swelling of your airway and that sort of thing. That is about the same in all vaccines, and it's usually around one in a million. And so this vaccine is no different than the measles, mumps, measles, mumps, and rubella, the chicken pox, the DPT. Most vaccines have, you know, that sort of instance of the allergic reaction that's serious. Now, the other things, like if you're looking at, so some of the bleeding problems or even the stroke that was seen with the Johnson & Johnson the rate of that is about seven in one million people. And so so that is very uncommon. If you look at the bleeding problems that happen with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, that's only one in 20,000. And see, we still obviously depend on these other vaccines and we give them without thinking too much about it. The recent myocarditis, the inflammation of the heart muscle that was brought up and, you know, the Pfizer uh, and Moderna vaccines, that is, you know, a little more common. So if you look at boys between 12 and 17, which is the most common uh, group that this was seen in, it's 67 per million. But if you look at girls, it's like nine. So that is still 0.007% of people have this. And that's the reason that these vaccines are still being given, even though these very rare side effects have been identified. And so, you know, as we actually talked about on our previous interview, you've got to weigh risk and benefit and the good of the public. And so 
when you think about what this disease can do to people, it can cause myocarditis. It, it can cause stroke. And so if you look at, you know, is it better to try to move ahead with a vaccine, recognizing there will be a tiny percentage of people that might have a bad side effect as opposed to all of the people that could die of the disease, that becomes, you know, a public health decision. You know, I saw a statistic the other day, at least here in North Texas, the newest group that can get vaccinated ages 12 through 15, only 25% have gotten vaccinated. So I actually did an informal discussion with parents, and many of them said, hey, look, Steve, I got my vaccination, but I don't know about getting my child vaccinated. Do you have any thoughts about children and vaccinations? I, I do. And so the group of adolescents between 12 to 15 for the Pfizer and then Moderna is doing a similar study with the 12 to 17. They've been able to use a smaller number of adolescents to try to do these trials because physiologically an adolescent, you know, is, is not terribly different from the adult. And so they're using the same dosages. They're using the same frequency in between dosages. And so far, the efficacy looks even better. The, you know, the 12 to 15 for Pfizer was 100% effective. And uh, I'm sure the Moderna will, will be the same. It, once again, it's a risk-benefit thing. And you have to decide, uh, what's the risk of my child getting the disease and getting really sick? Now, that is lower in adolescents than it is you know, in older people. The problem you get into is, if you leave your adolescents and children unvaccinated, then you've got a problem with control of disease and are you taking care of the rest of your family and community if you do that? So far, there are no safety issues identified. And once again, you know, it's usually within the, you know, first couple of months after vaccination that we see these things. And at least in the Pfizer study thus far, there were no safety issues identified. Now, when you go from, you know, thousands of patients to millions of patients, once again, some things may show up like the myocarditis in adolescent boys, but you just have to look and see if it's so incredibly rare, you know, is it for the good of the, the community and public health that you go ahead and institute the vaccination programs as we've done with many other diseases. Dr. Hunter, you have impeccable and amazing credentials and a long history of practice. In all that you've seen, has there been anything that you feel is not right? So I'm pretty good at, at sniffing things out. Um, that Some of that comes from being a residency program director, <laughs> and, uh, and some of it just comes from doing this for a very long time. I have not. Um, I, I feel very comfortable uh, with the data that's been presented and the scientific evidence that's been presented and, and appears to be upheld. I, I don't have any suspicion that there is anything uh, fraudulent or counterfeit in any of this. And uh, I was one of the first to be vaccinated and uh, would do it again. And so uh, I just think it's a wise decision and I'm trying to protect those around me and uh, my community and my patients. And so, you know, I, and I hope that others can, can hear that. I, I have no vested interest in pushing something that I don't believe in. And ethically, I would never do that. 
Thank you, Dr. Lee Hunter, for presenting your case for the COVID-19 vaccination. And we hope that this has helped answer some questions. When we come back, we're going over to the executive office at Texas Health Resources to talk to Wenji Mayo about some of the changes that we are likely to see in healthcare because of what we've been through these last 18 months. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And you know, Thomas, we've talked a lot about COVID, but we haven't really talked about how it can transform the healthcare delivery system of the future. I think we've got about 20 years to have that conversation. <laughs> It'll be around for a while, for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. But we're delighted that we're bringing in to talk with us today, Wenji Mayo. She's Senior Executive Vice President, and she's the Chief Experience Officer at Texas Health Resources. Wenji, welcome to the show. Well, Steve, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, as we look at COVID, and I know we're still not out of the pandemic, but we're making great progress. As we navigate towards a new normal, how has COVID-19 changed the overall strategy and approach to healthcare delivery at Texas Health Resources? Well, you know, Steve, about five years ago, Texas Health set out to transform by becoming a more consumer-centric organization, and we adopted a strategy to do that. And the pandemic really didn't change our strategy per se. Um, It simply just sped it up. You know, what emerged from the pandemic were really three things, I think, that were universal for for almost everybody. The first is this idea that on-demand services became the norm and a baseline expectation in every aspect of our lives. You know, just look at the growth of Amazon, right? $8 billion in net revenue in Q1 of this year versus $2.5 billion for the same quarter in 2020. And you think about all of the proliferation of, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats and food delivered wherever you are, whenever you want it. Um, So this idea that I can get whatever services um, and products when I need them um, has really become a baseline expectation in society. I think the second is really the pace of change. You know, we saw adoption of new technologies and processes faster than we ever had seen before. And we did it safely. um, And we also did it very reliably. And I think the last thing is that technology has continued to advance with the pandemic really putting, you know, development and technological advances into overdrive and Technology is now finally able to deliver on some of our aspirations, especially in healthcare. And so these three trends really manifested themselves um, in healthcare as well. And, um, you know, responding to those is where we're really headed. Consumers want a seamless and convenient experience across all of their care and all of their providers and their points of access. And they want it on their time and in the location of their choosing. That hasn't changed. I think post-pandemic, they just want it faster. And um, we are doing everything we can um, to provide that. You know, that's an excellent answer. 
And as we drill down a little more, we're still learning from this pandemic. And as we even get out of the pandemic and have it in the rearview mirror, we're going to still have lessons learned. What would you say you've really learned from the pandemic and how that's going to affect that transformation of the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, while 2020 was not the year I think that any of us expected, we actually made extraordinary advances and were able to leverage many of the new capabilities that we had built as part of our COVID response um, and really utilize them and learn from that experience in terms of how we go forward delivering on the vision for the future. The first is really having one single source source of truth to make timely and informed decisions. And that was really key. Um, We used foundational capabilities we built in data and analytics and insights to build real-time COVID dashboards that allowed us to efficiently manage supplies and staffing and capacity across our entire network of assets from hospitals to surgery centers to um, physician offices. Um, And so that was really important. Having these tools allowed us to be nimble and successful during the pandemic and managing assets across the ecosystem will be something we continue to do. Uh, We also learned that when we were focused, we could really accomplish anything. And as we emerge from the pandemic, we will continue to be laser focused on building a coordinated network of care that is curated to meet the personalized needs of each member of our community. Um, And and using technology to do that um, and enable that will continue to be a key driver for us. Um, We were able to stand up four vaccine clinics in 96 hours and allow people to schedule in and communicate with them via text. And, um, you know, to stand up a brand new service in 96 hours would have seemingly been um, met with, um, well, we can't do that. And, well, what about this? Um, But, you know, it really showed us that that is something we can do and that we can transform much more quickly than we anticipated. I think the biggest reminder, though, and, and I say reminder, because it's something we've known all along, so it's not a learning, is really the commitment and resilience of our frontline caregivers um, and what extraordinary people they are. And what I'm most proud of is that our Texas Health team never stopped caring for our patients, whether they were directly caring for COVID patients or supporting our frontline caregivers by ensuring we always had the supplies, equipment, and technology to best take care of our patients. Um, this, This mantra of one team, one fight, Um, is something that we will take with us um, in the future as well. You know, that's an excellent point. And you mentioned taking care of the patients, especially the patients that are infected with COVID-19. But for many North Texans, our daily routine and healthcare decisions have changed dramatically during this pandemic. Care is moving more from, say, the hospital or clinic setting to the home. How have you dealt with that paradigm shift in adapting new channels and venues of care? Yeah, we actually started doing this at Texas Health um, before the pandemic, and then clearly the pandemic increased um, the offerings that we had and the adoption of those offerings. For example, in early 2019, Texas Health um, partnered with Dispatch Health, um, a provider of on-demand mobile care, and really brought back the house call to North Texas. 
Dispatch brings a mobile medical team equipped with technology and tools to care for minor to serious injuries and illnesses. And um, these clinicians are come to your home and can treat numerous uh, health issues that you may have. And since its launch, um, over 18,000 patients have been seen through Dispatch Health, this great um, care at home, house call service that we have. And we have seven cars that cover the DFW area and they're often full. Um, I think the other area that uh, many of us are also, we're also um, growing pre-pandemic and then clearly grew exponentially during the pandemic was virtual visits. Our physician group, Texas Health Physician Group, conducted just shy of 170,000 virtual visits in 2020. Um, when North Texas shut down, we adopted at record speed and consumers clearly valued it. Um, in fact, more than nine out of 10 Texas Health patients that had a virtual visit would recommend them to others. And as for ne what's next, you know, work is underway to enable more care at home, um, including hospital at home for specific complex and chronic patients that require around-the-clock monitoring. Um, we are also exploring remote monitoring platforms um, for chronic disease management so that we can really predict and prevent disease um, and keep you out of the hospital so that we can intervene earlier. You know, Wenji, I've seen you do presentations related to artificial intelligence and how we're going to need that as we move to the future. Based on pre-COVID thoughts on artificial intelligence, and now that we've gone through this pandemic, has there been any redefinition, if you will, of how we use artificial intelligence from your perspective in the future? Well, I do think that, you know, the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, in the clinical arena will continue on the path that it was on for a while in terms of being able to identify, um, you know, high-risk patients, being able to predict disease before it occurs. So I think in general on the clinical side, AI will continue. I think on the operational side, though, we are exploring AI and machine learning um, in more expanded ways than we have before the pandemic and found a lot more use cases um, that are in the non-clinical side that are novel and interesting to us. Um, for example, um, and this is more in the kind of machine learning bot building versus true artificial intelligence, but one of the challenges we had um, in operating our vaccine clinics was knowing who had been vaccinated and with which vaccine because sometimes the patient couldn't remember or sometimes, you know, we would be seeing patients who said, oh, well, I'm, uh, um, I'm here for my first dose, but they would mention that they had gotten a vaccination, you know, a week prior, but on our schedule, they said they were scheduled for a first dose. So what we were able to do was to build a bot um, that would take the entire list of um, patients that we received from Tarrant County, put them and let the bot run it against MTRAC, which is the database nationally that has all of the individuals and their vaccination status, um, so that we could see who had been vaccinated with what type of vaccine 
so that we could deliver our vaccines to the patients in a safe and reliable manner. And I think that is a great use of technology um, and bots that will continue. This is Wenji Mayo. She's the Senior Executive Vice President and the Chief Experience Officer at Texas Health Resources. What a year it has been for them and for her, and she's giving us a little peek behind the curtain of lessons learned and future directions. And when we come back, helping patients pay their bills. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome back. We have one of the senior executives from Texas Health Resources with us, Wenji Mayo. She is senior executive vice president and also the chief experience officer there at THR. And Steve, you have an important question for anybody who wants to know how they can better serve the public. You know, Wenji, what do you think today's consumers really want from the healthcare industry that one, we're not delivering or was struggling to deliver? Yeah, I, I think there's two things um, that we're still struggling to deliver. Uh, the first is truly looking at the whole continuum of care, um, both the clinical care as well as the holistic care and emotional support through whatever health issue you may be having and how we can integrate that and coordinate that um, through the entire journey um, that a consumer has. We're making progress as an industry and at Texas Health, but there's always more that we can do. Um, I also think we don't really grasp yet the impact that this pandemic will have in regards to how consumers will behave going forward and how these delays in care will impact long-term consumers' health. And so a big priority will be identifying and understanding how the disruptions in people's lives and the economy are going to influence health care, health status, people's behaviors, um, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And then finally, I would say the one thing that the industry is still struggling on is a simple way to understand and pay your bill. That is something that is a passion of mine that we are very focused on here at Texas Health. We've made some incredible advances um, over the past uh, two years, and we're about to, to launch um, some even more consumer-friendly tools so that you can get a very clean and accurate estimate and be able to consolidate and pay your bills in a friendly manner that you've come to expect from other aspects of your life. And that is something that, that I think the entire industry is still um, working on. You know, Wenji, you brought up a really good point in that answer related to making it easier related to payment, making it really more consumer-friendly. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. I want to ask you, as you know, I used to be a chief financial officer in a hospital. What do you think about transparency? I really think just posting your charge master, which for our listeners is the total retail price that is for hospital procedures and services, I'm not sure that's going to help people make an informed decision because there are other contractual arrangements with insurance companies, et cetera. 
that uh, would be reducing that retail price. So, Wenji, how do you think we help consumers understand that part of the financial part of determining how much it's going to cost me? Well, I think to the consumer, transparency needs to be relevant to them. Posting a charge master is, you know, is fine and, and we can do that, but that is not a consumer-friendly experience. What a consumer wants is to know that I am about to have this type of care. What will that care cost based on the plan that I have? And not only what is the immediate episode of care going to, to cost, but also what can may I need to plan for or can I expect for this perhaps new chronic diagnosis and what might that be, not just over the next month or next couple months, but over the course of this disease, some of which you live with for the rest of your life. And how do I plan for those things? And to have the ability to have a tool or a person, a financial concierge, guide you through that process and answer those questions, whether it's for a short episode of care of one or two days, or whether this is a lifelong diagnosis and understanding how to how to plan um, financially for what the, 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 the impact might be on you and your family um, is, is something that I think is much more relevant to consumers and really will help them in both um, managing the disease um, but also managing the financial health of their, their life and their family. Wendy, I totally agree with you. What a great answer. You know, I've asked quite a few questions, but what should I have asked you that I didn't that you would like to emphasize? I am excited that we've entered a new stage in our COVID response. You know, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting bigger and brighter each day, um, which is especially important for the sake of our Texas Health employees. Um, Our Caregivers and our entire workforce have given so much of themselves over the past year to help carry North Texas through this pandemic. You know, um, the resilience they've shown, the support they've given each other is really a testament um, to who they are um, and to Texas Health. And people ask me all the time, you know, what will you remember um, from 2020? And of course, yes, I'll remember that it was the year of the pandemic. But I will also remember that it was the year that um, Texas Health was at its best. And um, I don't think I can be in any conversation or, you know, in any public forum without thanking our entire Texas Health team and especially our frontline caregivers who um, gave so much of themselves during the past year. Lindsay, I'd like to ask you about that concierge program that you've talked about. That's been something that's come into medicine over the last several years Do you see this whole concierge concept expanding? I do. You know, I think that each one of us has a different set of circumstances and a different set of needs. And many of the processes that we have within healthcare and other industries as well is more, you know, one size fits all, not meaning, you know, we treat all diseases the same. Um, The clinical conditions, obviously, we've always tailored a clinical treatment plan to, you know, what's going on with you personally. But in terms of um, the administrative component or paying your bill or um, 
helping you, you know, and your family go through whatever health crisis you might be going through, um, being able to understand your personal situation and to give you the tools and the resources to be able to manage through that and walk with you every step of the way is really what a concierge does. And whether that concierge is, you know, in person or somebody you can pick up the phone and call or somebody you can text at any time, 24-7, so that you have somebody who's walking in that journey with you all along the way, um, I think is is important. And, you know, I referenced it specifically in terms of our financial concierges. Um, this is an area where we know that paying the bill can be a very stressful experience and it can be very confusing. Um, and so we have financial concierge that you can call um, when you have questions about your bill, either before you're having um, the care or after you're having the care. And we've put in a lot of personalized um, tools in order to help people understand and navigate the bill pay process. For example, um, if you are a family that has had care within Texas Health and multiple family members, for example, have had care, and we saw this a lot during COVID, right? Um, whole families that got COVID and needed care. Um, you know, previously you would get a bill for each one of your family members and you would go in and pay each one of those bills separately. Um, and perhaps you needed a payment plan for one of those bills or two of those bills or all of those bills. And that's really time consuming and it doesn't add value um, to the consumer. And for me as a consumer, that would frustrate me immensely. Um, what you're able to do now is you're able to consolidate all of those bills into one place, be able to manage them on one payment plan, and should you need to, one, um, you can contact a financial concierge at any time to ask any questions about those bills um, and be able to modify your payment schedule or pay off your bill um, all in one fell swoop. And, and that, I think, is truly adding value to our consumers and giving them back time um, which is, you know, the one thing that you can't make any more of. That's for sure. Wenji Mayo, thank you so much for your comments. And thank all of you for joining us on the human side of healthcare. Stay well, and we will see you back here next week.